But wait, there's more. Hi, everybody. It's Terry O'Reilly here, and we're happy to announce something we've never offered before. It's our But Wait, There's More subscriber package. If you're a fan of Under the Influence, you'll get more than ever before. You'll get more bonus episodes like the live recording and audience Q&A we did recently at the Hot Docs Podcast Festival, exclusive for subscribers only. You'll get more podcasts with additional stories. You'll get early access so you can listen to all of our new shows before anyone else. You'll get all of our episodes, including archives, ad-free. Tisk tisk. I won't judge. You'll be invited to Ask Me Anything sit-down chats with yours truly. You'll get first dibs on tickets for live events. You'll get big discounts on Under the Influence merchandise. And that's only the beginning, all for a few bucks a month. Just go to our show page on Apple Podcasts and tap Try Free to start your free seven-day trial. Membership has its privileges. Hmm, you should copyright that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is an apostrophe podcast production. He's soaking in it. Now tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. A lot of things changed that night on February 9th, 1964. Not only did a new band from Liverpool cause every teenage girl from coast to coast to have seizures, it also inspired an entire generation of bands. One of those groups was called the Bo Brummels. 
Started in San Francisco in 1964, shortly after the Beatles invaded North America, the band was made up of five musicians. They were discovered by a pair of local disc jockeys who had started a new record label. They brought the Bo Brummels into a recording studio and paired them up with a 21-year-old producer by the name of Sylvester Stewart. You may know him as Sly Stone, soon to be of Sly and the Family Stone. The Bo Brummels had written a good song, and Sly Stone helped them record it. It hit the charts in January of 1965 and was called Laugh Laugh. Many thought the band was English, as Bo Brummels sounded vaguely British, and the group dressed in Beatlesque suits with Beatlesque hairstyles. Their debut album, titled Introducing the Bo Brummels, was released in April of 65 and yielded a second single that reached the top 10 called Just a Little. As with all bands in the early 60s, the music was the all-important driver, but so was marketing and a dash of luck. The Bo Brummels had not only crafted their songs and their look, they had also crafted their name. Bo Brummel was a term for an excessively dressed person, and the band liked the Britishness it implied. But it also had one other thing going for it. It put them right next to the Beatles in the record bins. B-E-A-T-L-E-S, right next to B-E-A-U, Brummels. So when thousands of young girls rushed to get the latest Beatles record, and usually found it sold out, the next thing their fingers touched were the Bo Brummels. They looked like the Beatles, they sounded like the Beatles, they had hit records, and they were conveniently parked right next to the empty Beatles bin. It was perfect positioning. The marketing of rock and roll has a fascinating history. It's littered with groundbreaking artists, opportunistic managers, trailblazing merchandising, and flat-out luck. It's a story that spans six decades and crosses genres, eras, changing musical tastes, and ever-evolving technology. And it all begins with a truck driver. You're under the influence. To understand the marketing of rock and roll, you must begin with the origin of the species. You have to dial the time machine back to 1954 to a recording studio at 706 Union Avenue in Memphis, Tennessee to a truck driver with ambition and a cigar-smoking manager with carnival experience. When Elvis Presley hit the airwaves in 1954, rock and roll as we know it discovered its first bookend. His original five singles on the Sun label were regional hits in the southern U.S., but his impact was beginning to send tremors throughout the music industry. In November of 1955, Sun Records founder Sam Phillips ran into financial difficulties and sold Elvis's contract to RCA Records for $35,000, which was the largest sum paid for a singer up until that time. 
In March of the following year, a cigar-chomping ex-carnival promoter named Colonel Tom Parker signed Presley to a management contract. It would be a partnership that would last until Presley's death, 21 years later. While Colonel Parker instantly understood his young singer was becoming the hottest act around, he also figured his popularity might last two years at most. So Parker was determined to ride that short wave for all it was worth by marketing Presley in ways no other manager had ever dreamed of. With his new RCA contract, Elvis insisted on recording a song inspired by the suicide of a lonely man who jumps from a hotel window. It was called Heartbreak Hotel. The record company was completely against it, saying nobody would be interested in a song that morbid. Elvis was unfazed and recorded it anyway. The song topped Billboard's charts for seven weeks, going to number one on the country and western and R&B charts, and became Elvis's first million-selling record. Seeing that national success, Colonel Tom Parker started to plan an extensive marketing campaign. To make his boy the number one attraction in North America, all the while Elvis harbored a secret desire to be a movie star. And in all the reading I've ever done about Elvis, I've long believed that this was Elvis's real goal in life. So, in 1956, Presley made his first movie titled "Love Me Tender." The film was a huge hit, and there were one million advance sales for the title song. A first for a single in music history. Sensing a marketing opportunity that no music manager had ever considered before, Colonel Parker signed a deal with a Beverly Hills movie merchandiser for forty thousand dollars. The goal was to turn Elvis into a brand. It was a revolutionary strategy, as it was the first all-out merchandising campaign ever aimed at the teen market. In just a few months, over 50 different Elvis-themed products were produced, from charm bracelets and necklaces to scarves, teddy bear perfume, tops, bubblegum cards, and sneakers, to record players, hats, and lipsticks in heartbreak pink and hound dog orange, sold with the slogan "Keep me always on your lips." The Wall Street Journal reported that by the end of 1957, Elvis merchandise had grossed over 22 million dollars. By 1962, Colonel Parker's share of that booty would become an eye-popping 50 percent. His most ingenious product, though, was "I Hate Elvis" buttons. The Colonel even made money from people who despised his hip-swiveling star. When Elvis went into the army for a two-year posting in 1958, this sustained merchandise marketing helped keep his image alive. When he returned in 1960, it was as if Elvis hadn't skipped a beat. The nearly 50-year-old Colonel Tom Parker had not only promoted the first major rock and roll star in history; he had designed the first ever blueprint for marketing rock and roll that included not just the music. But movies, TV shows, concerts, and hundreds of products—it was a ripple that did not make it all the way across the ocean. Oh, 
Brian Epstein was the manager of a family-owned business called North End Music Stores in Liverpool, England. He began hearing a lot about a new group called the Beatles who were playing at the Cavern Club. So he went to hear them and one day proposed a management contract. The four lads, which included drummer Pete Best at the time, eventually agreed, and a five-year deal was signed in 1962. With that, Epstein created a company called NEMS to manage the Beatles. As the band became popular in England, NEMS began to be overwhelmed with product licensing offers. But once the band hit America, NEMS became besieged with merchandising requests. So Epstein reluctantly set up a subsidiary called Celltab to deal with the offers. Celltab was Beatles spelled backwards. As Epstein saw it, the merchandising was just a PR abstraction at best. So he asked a friend to take the management of Celltab off his hands. That friend, Nicky Byrne, suggested a 90-10 split. Which, by the way, was 90% for Byrne... 10% for the Beatles. Epstein agreed immediately, thinking that 10% of incidental merchandising was better than nothing, and, in the stroke of a pen, lost untold millions for the Beatles. And, as some believe, that decision would be a factor in Epstein's suicide five years later. When the Beatles hit North America, the demand for Beatle merchandise was, in a word, unprecedented. The Reliant Shirt Corporation sold a million Beatle t-shirts in a three-day period. Remco, one of the largest toy manufacturers in America, made 100,000 Beatle dolls and had orders for half a million more. Beatle wigs were being manufactured at a rate of 35,000 per day. And those were only three of the 150 Beatle products that had been licensed. The Wall Street Journal estimated that more than $50 million worth of Beatles merchandise would be sold by the end of 1964. That news made Brian Epstein visibly ill. It was then that he realized the colossal mistake he had made in agreeing to a 90-10 split. To put it in proper context, that lost merchandising revenue easily dwarfed what the band was making on live performances and record sales combined. It is believed that Epstein lived in dread of having to face the Beatles on the issue, as Epstein's contract with the band was coming up for renewal in 1967. That enormous revenue loss, paired with the fact the Beatles had decided to stop touring which was Epstein's main purpose as a manager, helped, along with some personal issues, to make him utterly despondent. On August 27, 1967, 32-year-old Brian Epstein was found dead in his apartment, the result of an overdose of sleeping pills. But say what you will about Epstein's lack of merchandising foresight, the Beatles were a powerful foursome, and he knew how to present them well. As Keith Richards once said to Lennon, the Stones had only one frontman, but the Beatles had four. The Rolling Stones were marketed in a very different way. Their manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, who had done PR work for the Beatles, was very shrewd in his thinking. 
he instinctively knew that the only way to make a dent in the tsunami that was the Beatles was to position them as the anti-Beatles. So instead of having the Stones dress up in matching suits, as almost every other Beatles-influenced band did, he had them dress down. As he once said, the Beatles looked like they were in show business, but it was important for the Stones to look like they weren't. The Stones were a blank canvas for Oldham, so he told them they were bad boys, and they became it. When a British journalist asked in a story, would you let your daughter marry a Rolling Stone, Oldham took the line and branded the group with it. It perfectly underpinned the marketing that set the Rolling Stones apart. Here's Mick Jagger keeping the branding going at the band's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989. You know, it's, it's slightly ironic that tonight we're all on it. You see us on our best behavior, um, but we're being rewarded for 25 years of bad behavior. But the happy-go-lucky Beatles still outsold the bad boy Stones by a wide margin. And that didn't go unnoticed by two producers looking to create a new television series. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Inspired by a hard day's night, Producers Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider decided to create a TV show about a Beatlesque band called The Monkees. 
So in 1966, they held auditions, and out of 437 hopefuls, chose Davy Jones, Peter Tork, Mike Nesmith, and Mickey Dolenz. While the Monkees were a pure Hollywood creation, the Prefab Four enjoyed enormous success. They had four number one albums in a single year, had seven albums on the Billboard 200 charts at the same time, and have sold over 65 million records. A huge part of that success was due to marketing. Like the Beatles, they were happy-go-lucky, funny, and each of the four had a unique personality. Leveraging that image, there were monkeys comics, hats, jewelry, buttons, lunchboxes, corgi monkey mobiles, trading cards, belts, binders, wallets, and more. Like the Fab Four, it was a marketing bonanza. And it didn't miss the eye of a young, aspiring musician named Haim Witz. In 1972, Haim Witz and his friend Stanley Eisen were in a group called Wicked Lester. The band wasn't getting any traction, so they decided to change direction. They added a new drummer, who had been in a band called Lips, which inspired Stanley to suggest the name Kiss. That's when Haim Witz became Gene Simmons, Stanley Eisen became Paul Stanley, Peter Chris was that new drummer, and guitarist Ace Fraley joined the band not long after. The newly formed Kiss signed to Casablanca Records, but their first two albums failed to sell. But the band was explosive on stage, with full face makeup, wild costumes, 8-inch platform heels, fireworks, and fake blood spewing everywhere. They sold lots of concert tickets, but no records. So they decided to release a live album to try and capture the excitement of their performances. It was a risky strategy, as very few bands had broken through with concert albums. But the record was released, it was titled Alive! and it spawned their first top 40 hit titled Rock and Roll All Night. It was the breakthrough Kiss had hoped for, and the LP went top 10. Over the next four decades, the band would go on to sell over 100 million albums worldwide. More than a rock band, KISS is a rock brand. It's safe to say they have generated more revenue from marketing than any other band in history. Today, the KISS empire boasts over 3,000 product categories. Over 10 million KISS t-shirts have been sold. There are KISS action figures, pinball machines, lighters, makeup, trading cards, footballs, barbecue sauces, cookies, apparel, Merry Christmas throw blankets, nutcrackers, phone cases, a KISS arena football team, and even KISS condoms, KISS caskets, and KISS cremation urns. For people and pets. There's an 18-hole KISS mini golf course in Las Vegas, complete with a hotter-than-hell wedding chapel if you'd like to tie the knot with a KISS-costumed minister. The Gene Simmons Family Jewels reality TV show was yet another vehicle to attract a whole new generation to KISS, and it was the second-highest-rated series on A&E. Simmons is such a successful marketer that he also has a company called Simmons Abraham Marketing, 
with a client list that includes the Indy car race. Kiss also markets to toddlers with Kiss baby bottles and bibs. And at many concerts, they give away free tickets to kids. It's brilliant marketing, always grooming their next generation of fans. The Kiss brand is worth somewhere north of $1 billion today, more than 40 years after the band began. Marketing rock and roll has always been a high wire act to match the high wire acts. For example, in 1977, Kiss partnered with Marvel Comics to create a series of superhero comic books. But to make it a truly memorable marketing stunt, Kiss had a nurse draw blood from the band members in front of a notary public and mix the blood into the comic book's red ink. That same year, which was the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's ascension to the throne, the Sex Pistols rented a boat and cruised the River Thames outside the British Parliament buildings, playing songs from their latest album at maximum volume. Soon, the police cut the power and boarded the boat, arresting dozens of people. But the Sex Pistols' single, God Save the Queen, still went to number two on the charts. Todd Rundgren's second album had only sold 15,000 copies, so he decided to advertise his third album with a poster of himself holding dynamite, with the headline, Go Ahead, Ignore Me. It must have worked. It turned out to be one of his most successful albums. On Sig Sig Sputnik's debut album, Flaunt It... The band left long gaps between the tracks to be sold as advertising space. The 20 30-second slots were sold for between $2,500 and $7,000 and attracted advertisers like L'Oreal. As the third decade of rock gave way to the 1980s, one of the biggest music marketing opportunities was about to change everything. It would be fueled by technology, it would alter the way we consumed music, and as we'll discover next week in part two, it was saved from near death by Mick Jagger and a single dollar bill. And so ends part one of our look at marketing rock and roll. It's been an interesting journey thus far, with so much of rock marketing having been established so early and firmly in the formative years. From the touring movie and merchandise trailblazing of Elvis Presley, to the marketing lesson the Beatles learned the hard way, to the emergence of the first bad boys of rock, the Rolling Stones, who borrowed a chapter from Madison Avenue and positioned themselves against the leading brand to become the anti-Beatles. As the 60s moved into the 70s, bands became more savvy with their marketing. The Monkees proved that a well-crafted image could move millions of dollars of product. It was a lesson not lost on KISS, the biggest marketing machine rock has ever seen. While the music was still the reason fans came, the marketing strategies gave those fans a way to become more emotionally connected to their favorite bands. It gave them a piece of the group they could take home something they could wear proudly or wave defiantly. 
only a few consumer products have ever transformed their customers into fans. Think Apple, Nike, and Harley-Davidson. It is the great advantage bands have over brands. Part two of our program will focus on the impact of technology on the music business. Because 1981 sees the music industry transform completely with the arrival of something that doesn't even have a name yet. But it will set the stage for an entirely new way to market rock and roll and keep us all under the influence. I'm Terry O'Reilly. Under the Influence is produced by Debbie O'Reilly. Sound engineers, Keith Ullman and Jeff Devine. Research, James Gangle. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.